Hello and welcome to Open Door, an education podcast that offers a glimpse into classrooms of educators from all around the world. I'm Lee Blowers and I will be riding solo on today's episode. However, Chris and I have met and planned out this episode, which promises to be a good one. Today, I'll be joined by Bobby Siegel, a mathematician, teacher and author from East London. He shot to fame for his enthusiastic performances on University Challenge and has since filmed two series of Monkman and Seagull's Genius Guide to Britain with fellow contestant Eric Monkman. He's recently released a new book, The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers. So I'm really looking forward to sitting down with him and learning more about his ideas in education. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Open Door and a huge welcome to Mr. Bobby Seagull. How are you doing, Bobby? I'm really glad it's currently half term, so I'm uh, particularly in good spirits to recuperate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think all teachers need this time. Even though we love being in the classroom, you need a bit of a chance to relax, right? Exactly. And then the students need a bit of time away from us as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm a Chelsea fan. I maybe should have told you that before. Ooh, I think this is the interview over. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, for me, this is quite strange introducing not just a West Ham fan onto the podcast, <laughs> but someone who's actually brazenly open about being a West Ham fan. Very, very open. Um, <laughs> what's your assessment of your season so far? So I think I started off almost like, you know, like a school term report. Uh, started off uh, a half term one, g- good start, looking like this might be a, a strong year for you. Maybe you've turned over a new leaf. And then by Christmas and get you know Christmas getting wired, it looks as if uh, bringing the parents in uh, for a conversation. And at this stage, it's looking like you know I've had a, a couple of warnings, had a suspension. You know, <laughs> I could be on my way out, uh, expulsion from the school. It's not, it's not good at all. And I'm you know I, I'm I'm almost like expecting the worst and hoping for the best now. <laughs> I think watching from an outsider's point of view, there's some glimmers and uh, glimpses of pure magic in your team. Mm. And uh, and then, yeah, you have those weeks where it just doesn't seem that anyone turns up. Yeah, I think it feels like more and more of the latter. And the worst thing is that in my school, actually, not many students support West Ham. And they all remind me every time. So oh, who do you support no. again? You know who I support. You don't need to ask <laughs> like <this. laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm in a school full of Man City fans. So, uh, okay. and, and suddenly <laughs> Liverpool yeah, well, Liverpool, yeah, I'm yeah. expecting an influx of Liverpool fans in the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so to kick us off, could you please just sort of introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell them a little bit about what you're up to these days. So my name is Bobby Seagull. I'm from East Ham in the London Borough of Newham. I'm a part time school class teacher teaching in a state school. Only about 15 minutes walk from my house in uh, East Ham. Uh, I'm also doing a doctorate part-time at Cambridge uh, related to mass anxiety and also the role that the media plays in depicting uh, negative stereotypes of maths. Mm-hmm. I also do uh, a lot of media work communicating math, science and education more generally. So I present a Monkman and Seagull uh, Genius Guide for the BBC. I write for the Financial Times. Uh, I'm an ambassador for the charity National Numeracy and also a UK libraries champion um so they're the main uh, things i get involved with yeah that's that's quite a lot on your plate and i think and i think i've forgotten quite a few but i'm sure we'll come to it. like i do a, I do a <laughs> podcast as well, but yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah yeah we'll get onto the podcast later on and um and your books as well um, sure about that, an author. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. quite an important one um yeah 
So just to wind back a little bit, you gave up a role at PwC as an accountant to pursue a career in teaching. What was the spark behind that decision? Had you always wanted to be an educator? I've always enjoyed supporting people. I've always found I got a, you know, a great sense of internal value helping others. But actually, when I first left university, my, my initial career, I always thought I wanted to work in finance and banking. So I actually started out as a trader at Lehman Brothers. And uh, I know my students haven't heard of them, but all the mm-hmm. uh, esteemed listeners on this show will probably have heard of them. They were the bank that <laughs> collapsed in 2008, precipitating perhaps a financial crisis that we still haven't really recovered from. And then I did the same job as a trader for a Japanese bank called Nomura. And then I was at PwC where I qualified as a chartered accountant. But PwC, well, again, I actually did enjoy my corporate work. It, uh, it was a three, sort of two, three months sabbatical where I taught new graduates joining the firm. And it was in that little period that I realized that the teaching aspect was something that really resonated with me more than anything else. The chance of communicating ideas, skills and knowledge and was passing it on to the next generation. And from there, I sort of spent time with a social enterprise that I set up uh, supporting sixth formers uh, into top universities. And then I took the plunge and said, OK, let's go back to school, as it were. And mm-hmm. I trained as a teacher doing my PGC at Cambridge. And then, yeah, I became a teacher after that. Amazing. Amazing. Is it right that you were doing your master's whilst doing your PGCE as well? Yes, yeah, so master's. And, oh, so master's was, I was doing my master's, uh, and we'll come to it later. I did my, I was on university chancellor that same year, and then I was also the faculty head in my NQT year. That was a wow. challenging year, which I wouldn't like to repeat. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, it, sounds, it sounds like you've um, found the mathematical way of beating time. It's quite impressive. It's it's called lack of sleep, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So you clearly have a love and a passion for numbers. Um, I'd go as far as saying an interest in integers. Where does that passion come from? It's a question people often ask me, Lee. And obviously the classroom is important. I've had different teachers uh, throughout various stages I've influenced people. Actually, it was through sport and football in particular uh, Mm. that my passion came. So I remember that early mid 90s uh, like many young children i collected football stickers you know like they got got need got got need i'm very excited and a lot of my friends used to make assertions speculate about players without any evidence and there was actually one particular conversation that i think changed my trajectory it was where a friend had said to me that uh, southampton's letizia was better than arsenal's ian white and when i asked them why they were like oh just because look just you know, and they got a bit annoyed at me so uh, these sticker books were treasure trolls information it contained like the names ages heights goals scored left foot all these data about players and i took all the data and input into an early version of microsoft excel uh, and this took like a long time so every single player every single club like a labor of wow. love but then i was able to do a simple again not very difficult comparison between the two players and i found that um Letizia, I think in that particular season, scored 20% of his goals from the penalty spot. So actually, Ian Wright was a more effective striker, just purely on outfield play. And I, and I told my friend that, and he was like, oh, Bobby, you've got a, a good point. And it didn't, okay, it didn't make me popular overnight at all. <laughs> but it really showed me how powerful numbers can be. Because in a, in a very subjective world, numbers have the power to cut through um, biases and prejudice and just show you how things are really. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. I think this morning, actually, I was looking on Twitter and there's a big debate about was Ryan Giggs better than oh, Mane? I saw that as well. I, I, 
I, I, yeah, was it, and, and someone was claiming that um, who's, it, Wils, who's that uh, new young lad for Man United who plays for the Welsh guy? Daniel um, James. That, yeah, someone's claiming Daniel James is more effective than Ryan Giggs because of a bit of. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there we've got sort of a point of sometimes the numbers can skew that. Even as you were talking uh-huh. about Letizia there, you know, he was one of my favourite players, a he player was. with magic and a player who you'd pay money to go and watch rather than just an Ian Wright who can put the ball in the net. Yeah, that's um, But I think, yeah, there's definitely a need for numbers and an understanding of numbers. Um, as you can tell, I'm a huge football fan. I collected stickers <laughs> too. But I never came across that number route with football and I'm really interested into is that just a a personal thing or is that something I don't know that other people around you were doing or did somebody influence that I I don't think so obviously football you know there's always league tables and form tables Mm. so I had a sense that actually using data analysis stats would help me to understand the world more but it was Mm. just a I think it was a quirk of my dad getting a personal computer when they were sort of starting to emerge mm. and there was something called Excel on it. And I was like, oh, what can I use this for? Um, and I said, you can input in data, you know, at work, what he does. And I was like, oh, can I do it with my sticker book? And I did that. So I think it was just a, a quirk of fate. Had we not yeah. had Excel, maybe I might be an English teacher now or a, or a history <laughs> teacher. <laughs> yeah. But I, th- I think the amazing thing there is, you know, you jumped into something like Excel and you weren't doing it for the maths. And um, I find a lot of the challenges in your book as well. As I dug into them, just the pure joy of actually working through the process of them and then that point where it works and suddenly it all comes together and you go, oh, I've got it. There is, there's something very special about numbers and ver- something very special about mathematics generally that when you get it, it just fills you with an enormous pride. It does. And it's the same way, Lee, when we teach our students and the ones who don't quite understand the concept, when they get that light bulb moment, you know, mm-hmm. that is a, that's one of the most priceless moments of being a teacher because you can see, obviously, we know that we experience it ourselves when we're doing a problem that's a bit tricky and we get there. And when our students, we actually almost visibly see it in their eyes. And mm-hmm. that, is, that is pretty magical. Yeah, that's an incredible thing. And when, this, you know, that student then goes and helps another student. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Um. So you did mention a little bit earlier, University Challenge. You shot to fame through some very enthusiastic performances mm-hmm. on University Challenge and, um, and the subsequent relationship you formed with one of your rivals, Eric Monkman. How has it been working with him all over the UK? It's been fabulous. And again, it was completely unexpected. Because when I was doing University Challenge, I was doing my master's at Emmanuel College in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And I've always had a love for learning and reading. And I applied... And, you know, I got onto my team, was made captain, and I thought, oh, you know, I'd love to do well as possible in the quiz. You know, if I can win the trophy, that'd be amazing. But that was the limit of my ambition. And even even because they pre-recorded the series, and after the series was pre-recorded, we got our plastic name tag. And I remember sticking it outside my form room. And every parent's evening for different years, seven, eight, nine, I would leave it. You know, so like, you know teachers have got name tags, like mm. uh, Mr. Seagull, and you put it there. My one wasn't the school one. I'd put my university challenge <laughs> tag. I, I generally thought it would just give me a bit of kudos from the school, and that would be it. And I yeah. wasn't quite expecting to end up trending on Twitter throughout my series. And then Eric also <laughs> trended. And then as it turned out, we developed a friendship separately off screen, and we faced off in the semifinal. And I think the day before our match, we had actual celebrities like, Louis Theroux, Stephen Fry all saying, who do you support, Monkman or Seagull? And then our match just went, yeah, I think it was one of the, it was the most watched match of Universe Challenge this 
side of the century. I mm. think in the 90s, audience figures are higher, but I think generally Teddy audiences are higher. Um, and then yeah. on the back of that, we were invited to the the one show, had interviews like The Guardian, The Telegraph. Uh, the Daily Mail did an article. We didn't interview for them, but they, they, uh, uh, <laughs> they did an article. So we went, yeah, it went crazy. Then we had a Radio 4 show. Then we did the uh, BBC Road Trip series, exploring science, technology, history, a bit of maths as well. Uh, yeah, it's been a completely life-changing experience. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fantastic relationship and you can see that on screen, the friendship and um, I think just the pure love of knowledge between the both of you. I was watching you both in a library in Wales and that was just one moment that really struck me where you're both sort of whispering to the camera, we're going to stay up all night and read every book we can. That for me actually was my favourite particular site to visit. Uh, and for more than just that reason as well, because... It shows the, the sort of serendipitous nature of knowledge. So Eric and I were walking past the opera section uh, in the library, and I saw a book with the title Verdi on it, the Italian opera composer. And I remember that uh, as a West Ham fan, one of the chants I used to sing in the East Stand as a season ticket holder was the Paolo Di Canio, Paolo <laughs> Di Canio song. And mm. that was actually based on a Verdi opera called Rigoletto, and the aria was La Donne Immobile. La Donne Immobile. La Donne Immobile. And I taught Eric this in the library itself. <laughs> and Eric and I were singing the Paolo Di Canio chant in a library, purely because of random book and verdi sticking there. And it just shows how wonderful knowledge can be. Because obviously, we, you know, we need knowledge and skills to make sure we can progress in society, get qualifications, etc. But sometimes knowledge for its own sake is beautiful as well. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and you've got series two coming out soon. Is that right? That is correct. So it was meant to have come out in September, October, but I assume because of election Brexit taking up the majority of uh, television time with BBC, it got delayed. So we've been told from April onwards, we hope it's soon. So it's three one hour episodes looking at uh, scientific inventions and discoveries in Britain from 1750 to 1900. So it's a bit more, there's a bit more in-depth stuff, but it's still got some craziness as well. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure it's going to be great. Yeah, thank you. Um, so how's teaching changed since becoming a household name? Have the kids reacted to you differently or colleagues? So it's been an interesting change because obviously, obviously it sort of happened a little bit overnight. I remember the first time, I think in November 2016, where I trended number one on Twitter. And I, I think uh, they mentioned me on Capital FM, Heart FM. There's like a Metro article. And then the students came in the following day. So, oh, Mr. Seagull, did you see that you were trending on Twitter? And I, I sort of, at that moment, I realized, oh, maybe things might be different. But the nice thing for me is that it sort of built up over time. Obviously, that first night was a bit of a shock. But over time, it's built up and built up. But I think the what I've generally found is that it means students give me a little bit more time at the start. You know, sometimes mm. when kids enter, especially a maths lesson, uh, yeah. whether they're primary or secondary, they're like, oh, no, it's maths time. Whereas with me, they'll give me just a little bit more time uh, to try and win them over because they oh, that's that teacher who sort of does <laughs> stuff on the telly. Um, so it means that I've got a, more of a chance to win over them with mathematics. Mm. And do you find that parents are a bit more approachable or um, maybe respect your knowledge a little bit more? Yeah, they'll, they'll come and chat to me a bit more and ask for advice. And then actually, on the back of that, a few parents have actually asked me to... Uh, come and talk to other parents in their primary schools. Some of our feeder primary schools have actually gone in and done talks and conversations about maths. Uh, and that's primarily because they've seen me on television and said, oh, we've seen that you're very passionate about learning and maths and science. 
So actually, I think it's given me more of a platform to share things I, I had all sort of knowledge of already, but now people want to listen to me. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, you just mentioned elementary school. So I teach in an international elementary school in London. Um, what are the key things that you want primary teachers to ensure for their students so that they're prepared for secondary maths education? So it's a, it's a good question. Uh, and what I'd firstly say is that primary school teachers do an amazing job. I don't know how you manage to teach <laughs> maths, English, science, and uh, whether P and technology, all the different things that you do. It's, you know, it's I struggle with one subject, let alone between <laughs> the multiple things you do. But as a, as a teacher in secondary, again, I look at my older students and I think the ones who struggle. Uh, so the ones who are good, the, the, you know, they have positive experience, but the ones are sort of towards the latter end of the year. Often it's the, still the, the new, the sort of the, basics of numeracy that they still struggle on. Mm. Um, so they might be doing GCSE maths, maybe the lower part of the higher tier or the higher part of the foundation tier. And their numeracy skills hold them back from enjoying the subject. So again, basic things like number bonds, times tables, confidence with things like fractions, ratios, decimals. So I, I genuinely think it's just them feeling confident in the basics, yeah. as well as like having a passion for numbers in itself. But their confidence in the basics, if, if I have a student in year seven, who's got that confidence, I know that I can take them along the secondary journey. But if they've not got that, it's in a secondary environment because of the nature of half term assessments and uh, term assessments and moving sets up and down, you end up just having to force yourself through the curriculum. And students that struggle mm -hmm. with the numeracy aspects often can get left behind. And I've seen that that's one of the biggest tragedies of secondary school maths, I think. Mm, definitely. I think it's really interesting. Um... I think a lot of people sort of talk about the awe and the wonderment of maths and that's mm. something we need, but it has to be accessible. So you need to have that foundation, as you say, the number bonds, the times tables mm. to help you access um, some of the more interesting mathematics that can happen. A lot of the time as teachers, rightly so, we criticise um, the mathematics system in the UK. But what do you like about the current approach to maths? So... I think I do like the fact, again, I, I'm perhaps more looking from a secondary perspective. I know the GCSEs have changed in the last few years to make them more challenging. But one thing they have done, to their credit, is they've tried to bring more problem solving into schools. I know when I was taught mm. maths in secondary school, it was quite, you know, question, answer, question, answer, quite abstract. And of course, there is a need for abstraction in maths. But I found that recently the exams have had more problem solving them. And as a result, as a school teacher, we try to bring in more real life situations into our way of teaching maths. And, you know, a lot of students, when they leave school at 16 or 18, they probably won't use some of the theoretical aspects of maths, but they'll still need to apply their number skills to real life world situations. So I do think that is one thing that's got better. We've acknowledged that kids need to be able to read a, a, a worded problem and digest and find out what the numbers are involved. Because in the real world, a question, you rarely get the question like 75 times eight. Mm. You might say there are 75 buses um, uh, and eight of them in an hour. How many buses altogether? I mean, so you're, you're more likely to find situations where the numbers are hidden within a context. Yeah, I completely agree. I think problem solving is one of those things that has been pushed a lot more recently. And if we're talking about maths the big criticism is often but when am I ever going to use this mm. and as soon as we bring in those real world problems that you're talking about and problem solving um, I think it just gives a breath of life to maths and and a real reason for it 
Um, I was also recently talking to John Coward on a previous episode, and he was talking about problem solving being a big part of resilience. And I think um, that might pop up again when we look into maths anxiety a little mm, bit later. That's, that's, that's almost the first thing I was going to say when we get to that, but yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, we've talked about something that we really like about the current approach to maths. What do you think is in need of change? There was one particular thing. Oh, one particular thing. Or it one could be a few. <laughs> yeah, okay. But if I go for one particular thing... Uh, Okay, so this is, I don't want to burden primary school teachers with an additional thing, because I know there've recently been this online like numeracy times table test. I would actually just say if every child could come to secondary school being confident with their times tables, um, whether it's 1 to 10 or 1 to 12, because if they've got that confidence, even if that the times tables are not the be-all and end-all, because understanding abstract maths is different from being good at your times tables, it just means that they've got that confidence, because a lot of young people... 11 12 if they think they're good at times tables they often think they're good at maths and then therefore they'll work hard at the subject so that's the one thing i would say if if, if every child somehow could join secondary school at the age of 11 feeling confident with their times tables i think yeah as a secondary teacher it'd be much easier to take them on a journey mm. is it important for children to know their times tables by heart or is it okay for them to know kind of methods around so if they were doing six times seven they could do five times seven yeah. plus one do, more do, the math is going to be a bit of a cop-out one, but I would say almost a bit of both because they they should have that like lockdown, like, you know, the, the same way number bonds, 13 and 7 make 20, have it locked down. But if they can try and understand the patterns behind it, then you've got someone that not only has the the recall of key facts at the fingertips, but also the conceptual understanding. So if I could pick mm. one or the other, oh, it's a tough one. I'd probably <laughs> still go for the, wow, well, they just have it on lockdown. And the conceptual thing, I know yeah, I'm probably meant to say as a teacher, the concept <laughs> is maybe more important, but I just find that so many kids, especially the ones I teach at 15, 16, I teach a class that's on the boundary of grade three and four, so that's where the pass or fail. Mm. And some of the students, they're quite bright, but they struggle with maths because they, they can't do the times table. So therefore they see a question, the non-calculated question, and they just put their pen down and say, ah, oh, I'm just I'm quite tired now, it's Friday. But yeah. I, of your, you know, about percent of your lessons are on a Friday you can't just give up because your time table skills are weak so that's the one thing I would say yeah mm. I would probably sacrifice a bit of conceptual understanding just if they had it on lockdown so they could just tell me seven sixes are 42 and obviously they can work out that seven threes are double double that to give seven six yeah that's even better but maybe I'd, I would take the the initial just having it in their locker uh, for yeah. the first yeah luckily we're in a world where we don't have to go one or the other right we can go exactly. with both so uh <laughs> getting them locked down okay great yeah. um so recently i've been teaching and i've been finding that curricula is quite bloated um there's so much to cover that students don't really get the chance to go deeper with ideas it's almost that the national curriculum is built for breadth rather than depth um do you have the same experience in secondary mathematics uh absolutely there's an element of that in the sense of you know students have different areas of work, whether the number work, uh, shape, uh, data handling, probability. So there's, there's a breadth in the curriculum. And mm. I, almost, I almost think the school maths curriculum is designed for students that are, that are confident and competent. So the ones that will get good grades at GCSE, considering doing it for A-level. And I think the maths mm. curriculum for them does work. But the question is, I don't think it works necessarily for the students that are on the other end of the, the sort of the tables. 
because they uh, are covering so many topics that they never get the chance to really build the foundations or as I say, you've done one topic and then you've done one assessment and you're off to the next topic, but they barely sort of fully understood the previous topic. Um, yeah. So I think that there's definitely a, I think you can't really advocate and neither would I want to advocate for two curriculums. Because I know in the old days, they used to have a, an O level for really confident uh, students and then the CSE. And I'd never want to go back to a sort of no. separate system. Yeah, that, that's absolutely the wrong way. But there needs to be some way of accommodating students that need that foundation year seven and eight, whether it's like mastery, some schools do in key stage three, um, whether it's just putting less pressure on assessments in the early part of secondary school. But mm. I, I, there, there's so much pressure on doing assessments every half term and every school has to do this, but there's so much pressure on that, meaning that we just go through topics and we just whiz through them and want the next topic and the kids haven't really grasped the previous topic. Um, so I think there is too much breadth early on um yeah. too much i almost think uh, again for the students that are the, the i'm sure you experience the students that are really confident and competent they they thrive on it but the students that perhaps yeah. maybe try maths a bit difficult they just find it just almost like overwhelming yeah yeah i've heard similar situations where people are saying you know there's so much and those they're trying to differentiate and they're pushing their higher students further and further and extending them and some of those uh, slower graspers are trying to catch up and it's just moving too fast that they can't really get a hold. Um, yeah, I wonder whether there's a way to have a, a less broad curriculum, but one that allows those extensions to go deeper. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a big job to do. It would be yeah, a very, very tough job. <laughs> I'll leave that in your very capable hands. <laughs> so... Let's move on to your doctorate then. Um, you're looking into maths anxiety. From what you've found so far, what needs to be done and what can be done to create a less sort of maths anxious environment? So I actually chaired a conference with Pearson and Pearson are uh, the guys that run Edexcel. So most secondary teachers will do Edexcel, but there are obviously other exam boards. But I did a conference on maths anxiety and we met uh, with lots of teachers, uh, educators, uh, charities, and businesses about how maths anxiety can potentially impact their organizations and their schools and solutions towards them. Just to quickly make sure we're on the same page, maths anxiety, I would define it as that negative emotional response uh, we encounter when dealing with maths. And it can happen to, again, our school children when they're doing, let's say, a long division problem, or it can happen to adults in the real world if they're, let's say, splitting a restaurant bill and you're shifting nervously hoping the bill doesn't come to your uh, position <laughs> mm. <laughs> even mouse teachers i feel that sometimes and with pearson there are a few things that we came out with and actually the first thing that i think you'd mentioned was about building mathematical resilience mm. um because sometimes students who are not resilient if they encounter failure with maths obviously maths is a subject where you you do need to get things wrong in order to progress if some students get things wrong, the high learners, the high flyers, they'll be like, ah, oh, it's a challenge. I really want to get it right. Whereas mm -hmm. the ones who've got less resilience, they'll see it as like, oh, I can't do maths. I give up. So we need to build that up. And how we do that, it just takes time and being positive, having supportive environments rather than people, teachers that sort of, you know, tell students off for making mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. And then connected to that, this is what one theory that came out was about the growth zone model, where you need to find if students are really, so it's also like trying to find a balance between comfort and anxiety, because if students are just comfortable doing drills 
of the same activity, then they're not really developing. But if you stretch them too much and they're anxious and they're, they really have no idea where they're going and doing, mm. then they, they lose the plot because they think, I can't do maths at all. So it's trying to find that, that middle zone. It's called the growth zone between comfort and anxiety where you're stretching them, but not so much that they feel as if they have no idea what's going on. Um, mm. And that's against that. That's there's no like formula to work that out. That's a lot about teacher experience. You know, with we know with our own students where that zone is for students where they're being stretched, but they're not being overstretched. Mm. And I mean that must that has a huge reliance on having very very good formative assessments, pre-assessments, and just knowing your students where they are at the time and uh, what else is going on at home and around them, because I'm sure that growth zone changes depending on topic or depending on what else is going on in that child's life yeah absolutely so it's it, again it relies a lot on professional judgment of teachers um and again from the pearson conference in particular what i realized is that there's no one solution to addressing maths anxiety because again mm. for some people uh some students they love competition elements of games where you try and you, know, you give them a challenge and say in half an hour who can get it on the quickest but in mm. fact, that approach, sometimes that time pressure is what can lead to mass anxiety because there are a lot of students that actually, if you gave them time and, and you didn't put them under pressure, they could understand the, the question and get to depths with it and come with a solution. But if you say you have five minutes to get this done, it's that timed assessment that can put students off maths. So mm. again, it's, it's difficult. I don't, know, again, I don't know what to completely suggest because you do have timed assessments. But again, maybe we don't need as many internal timed assessments uh, that constantly put kids under pressure yeah yeah I think Joe Bowler talks a lot about um, the timed assessments and is trying to find is trying to find the right way and the right environment if you're going to have those kind of things what's the environment like for the students and um, yeah it's a very tricky one as you say I don't think there's one answer and I think it, it will vary from class to class and student mm. to student um, one thing that both Chris, my co-host, and I were talking about before was how we find that maths anxiety can be inherited from parents. Um, we often have parents in parent-teacher conferences um, getting really anxious over math grades um, and often sort of declaring, you know, I, I struggle with maths when mm. I was at school or I'm still not very good at maths. So it's been an in inherited thing. Um what do you think we can do to support parents and what can parents do to support their children um, so, in reducing that anxiety? So firstly, I would, I would say, I'll start with the second bit, what can parents do? So again, I read some work from Joe Bowler and she said that uh, every time in particular a mother says to their daughter that she can't do maths, there's an almost immediate drop-off in the girl's or the daughter's academic maths performance in school. Mm. It's not like a, oh, it's a delayed reaction. As soon as the mother says a girl can't, you know, we can't do maths, the daughters pick up on it and actually just almost think, oh, I can't do maths. So I would say, and that applies to boys as well, parents should, even if they found maths difficult, they should never tell their children maths is not something we can do. We don't have a maths brain because that signals to the child, ah, it's not something that I can do, something that my family can do. So I would say one is the, the, your, your messaging and communication. And mm -hmm. I think what can we do as teachers and as schools, I think it's trying to bring in the parents. So if you've got a normal parents' evenings where, um, again, I think in secondary schools and primary schools, primary schools, you'll see the same parent for every, every subject. But to have like an evening, maybe once a term um, or once a year, depending on the school's practicality, where you bring in parents and you talk to them about how they can get kids talking about numeracy 
on a day-to-day basis because I did one mm. session with our uh, year seven parents and some with our feeder year six schools. And we did a session where we got the parents in and we talked about how they can be more positive about maths, whether it's, again, their parents that do cooking or they go shopping. Mm. Um, these are parents that will be using numbers and get their kids involved from as young an age as possible because if the kids can see that maths is not just something in the classroom, then they'll build up that positive association with, oh, I'm helping my mom or dad with shopping and I'm also learning about maths. And actually, maths seems to help my parents in this particular way. So I think it's showing, mm-hmm. trying to get parents to connect numbers to their real world. Uh, and if we as teachers can encourage parents to do that and do that regularly, have that conversation every single year in year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, then parents will start developing the habit of showing kids, ah, there is maths everywhere. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. Um, we, our maths lead, Graham, he often does that. He has parents come in and he sets up manipulatives and mm. they learn some of the techniques we teach in school whilst also talking about the real world application. So it's definitely, for me, I agree, it's about that communication between teachers and parents, schools and parents and just getting to understand sort of the importance of maths. Um, I think another thing that we talk about a lot as well is that it's not necessary to have the right answer all the time. We can work towards it and have that flexibility and find ways. Um, I think a lot of parents are scared of coming across as stupid to their child or not Mm. knowing how to do it. So um, encouraging parents to not see that is really important. Right. um, Your new book, The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers, you talk about children's innate fascination with numbers and their love for facts and information. So, um, for example, you started talking about the Guinness World Records book, which I think Mm. every child who's (laughs) ever come across it just loves it, falls in love with it. Um, Does maths education inhibit this passion? Yeah, I think this is a question that I've got an analogy about. So there's a lady called uh, Eugenia Cheng, and she's, a, I think, a maths professor in America. I think she studied initially at Cambridge, but she's written a couple of books on how to bake pie. Uh, and pie meaning the mathematical pie. And she's a, she loves cooking as an am- amateur and says how her passion for cooking actually reflects her passion for math. But in one of the things that she says is that um, she compares the experience of PE to mathematics because she now, as an adult, uh, likes going to the gym, likes going running, does cycling, and is you know, in really good physical shape. So she enjoys being active. But if you ask her about PE, she said at school she hated PE. You know, mm. the, the order, the regimentation, being the last person to be picked. Um, and, you know, when she was at school, she said she thought that after school, she would never do anything physical again because she just absolutely hated the subject of school. And I think the analogy she said was that for some people, maths can be a bit like that. But sadly, they stop at 16. So, again, mm. they didn't enjoy maths at school because they didn't like the time test. They didn't like feeling behind other students who seem to be high flying with it. And then when they're 16, they're like, I'll never do maths again. And with mm. sport, there's also a big drive in the in the public. I don't know. Have you heard of a guy called Joe Wicks? He's a YouTube the star. body coach. The yeah. body coach, yeah. So he does a lot of work on YouTube, free work, where parents and adults and young people that perhaps didn't like sport try to get becoming fit themselves. And I think with maths, obviously as school teachers, we can do one thing, but I I think beyond the classroom, we need to help change the narrative about maths education because a lot of people seem to think uh, you do maths till 16 and that's it. But clearly people do use maths and numbers beyond 16, but making it a more positive thing. And again, I work with a 
charity called National Numeracy. And in fact, we were talking earlier about what can parents do. Uh, one thing I'd perhaps suggest to parents is on the National Numeracy website, they've got something called the Essentials Challenge. And these are, it's almost like a 30-minute diagnostic, almost like an MOT for your maths, where you can check your number skills. And, and if there are certain things that are not up to scratch, it can make suggestions and recommendations. So I think part of making maths education uh, more wholesome is, I think at teachers, schools, we're doing lots of things, but what can we do to help people beyond 16 so that when they become parents and have kids or they interact with young people, they're more positive. Because again, you think about PE, PE sometimes people have negative uh, emotional memories of it, but a lot of people like being active, like going on hikes, like going on walks, love going swimming. So mm-hmm. if we can try and get that passion and joy with the older population, I think it will spill down. Almost like well, rather than thinking about it from a kids to adults, think about it from adults to kids as well. Mm. That's a really, really interesting idea. I've never kind of split the idea of maths and maths education yeah. um, up quite like that. But I think that's a, a really interesting way of looking at it. And um, again, I love what you're doing in terms of maths, almost as the mathematical Joe Wicks. Trying to bring, <laughs> trying to bring maths into the conversation and trying to make it just more visible. I think mm-hmm. it's it's a uh, usually the hidden subject, isn't it? But trying to get that conversation going again. Absolutely, I think it's just uh, trying to change the narrative. And again, I do think there's so many more publicly visible maths teachers. And I think social media does play a part in that. You know, whereas 20 years ago we wouldn't hear much about maths teachers and what they're doing, but now we've got so many teachers who. Are, We've got podcasts like yourself and we're mm-hmm. visible being advocates of the subject. So I think, yeah, we are getting a groundswell of change. And uh, yeah, I can sense that, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years, we will have a better approach as a country towards maths because of, because of the number of maths teachers so passionate about it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, back on your book, you spent a chapter sharing your love for prime numbers. Ooh, what yeah. is it that makes prime numbers so special? I think... Uh, what was it, what is it? Pr- pr- primes are they're just like the building blocks of maths and i find it amazing that any number we can think of any integer you know two three seven a hundred million billion they can be the product of prime numbers and it's amazing to think that <laughs> they are they're literally the building blocks of our of our numerical world like you know, when we think of artists and their uh prime colors uh primary colors and we think of uh writers and all their verbs and nouns Prime numbers are literally the building blocks of mathematics and the most pure of maths. But what I find fascinating is that, again, I mentioned in my book a bit as well, but prime numbers are not just beautiful things, but they're things which are integral to our modern society. Like whenever we use a chip and pin or send an email, uh, anything that's encrypted relies on using really large prime numbers. So prime numbers not just are something that are intrinsically beautiful and integral to, you know, pure mathematicians but actually they really underpin our modern technology and society and it's i think it's something that really can fascinate kids when they see the patterns in it and they're trying to spot can you know can they spot patterns beyond 100 200 and in fact there's something called the riemann hypothesis which is a million dollar math prize where if you can work out the underlying pattern in prime numbers which no one has solved and to be honest if anyone did solve it would actually ruin our uh, technology encryption <laughs> security so maybe there are kids out there that are listening do not solve it or if you do just <laughs> and cream off money for yourself but don't don't reveal it amazing so have you had a go uh, is there a way of approaching it have you tried oh, different it's, approaches it's funny I actually get this with my year sevens and eights we sometimes do a whole lesson on prime numbers uh, or double lesson looking into 
how you might go about approaching it. I think there, there does seem to be, I think the, the, the general sense, there is, a, there is a pattern and we can sort of predict the density of prime numbers, how as we go up and up, there are fewer and fewer prime numbers. Mm-hmm. But the difficult bit is, can you prove it goes on forever? With computers, we can show it exists from 1 billion to 2 billion, 2 billion to 3 billion. We can show that sort of density pattern emerging. But how do you prove it goes on forever? At the moment, no mathematician has got an answer. But this is the joy of mathematics. Even if we never find an answer for this that's prime number distribution, mathematicians that do research into it uncover other properties and patterns. Um, so that, that's, that's the great thing about it. You know, Obviously, we want that end goal. We'd love to solve it. But if people keep on trying to find ways towards it, other new bits of mathematics will be discovered. So it's all good, I think. That's amazing. As you search for one goal, it kind of forks off and you find all different things out. It's, exactly. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Um, so you also do the Maths Appeal podcast, which I absolutely love with Susan Okariki. Yeah. Um, how did you meet? Yeah, so about a couple of years ago, I had an email or a LinkedIn message uh, I don't know whether your listeners use LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is um, uh, a platform normally where people just, you know, put their occupation and they post things occasionally related to their career. I had a message from a lady called Jenny Nelson, who's a radio producer, saying, oh, I've been following your Rise and Universe Challenge. I'd love to uh, have a conversation about a podcast. And I get occasional messages from people. And I try and, you know, I, get, I do get quite busy by time response. And yeah, I'd love to meet up when I can. And I got and I got very busy at the time doing my TV series. And then every month or so, she'd message saying, are you around? We'd love to have a coffee. And she probably thought I was just fobbing her off by saying, oh, I'm really busy, but we'll try and get back to you. And at one stage, I was like, oh, I'm definitely free in the next couple of weeks. Let's try and meet. And I met her. And I met Susan. And they told me about their idea. And I had a couple of other approaches from people doing podcasting. We'd love to collaborate with you. But I found that these two people had such a real passion. Like uh, Susan was a math teacher. Jenny's more a radio producer. But they just said that, we think, you know, there does need to be more work on educating the masses about mathematics. Um, and, and Jenny, because she had experience in producing podcasts and Susan being a fellow math teacher, I thought that was a great fit. And and, and now actually they're no, more than just podcast people. They're two of my best friends, you know. Uh, so oh, my maths can lead to more than just uh, numbers. It can lead to friendship. <laughs> oh, that's it. Um, is there plans for more? Because I think it finished on series one. And yeah. So what we're doing currently right now is... Uh, Susan and I, are, we do a lot of puzzles for Radio 4 or Mass Appeal. So these tend to be um, sort of like based on GCSE type problems or school problems. So what really approachable ones. Uh, yeah. And also we've done a recent collaboration, which is coming up very soon, with a man called uh, Tom Crawford. So he's a professor, actually he's a tutor at Oxford University for teaching undergraduate students. And he's renowned for doing um youtube videos aimed at older aimed at older students so six four more university students about mathematics but we thought you know we've got the radio maths appeal as it were format but we've branched out into doing uh, youtube videos so in the next few months there'll be maths um appeal collaboration youtube videos coming out and again sort of got our personalities but on a visual format um, oh, so we're trying to expand the mass appeal. So we would love to do another podcast soon as well. But we're trying to think of, you know, mass appeal doing puzzles, mass appeal doing YouTube as well. So, yeah, the mass appeal brand is still uh, still out there fighting. It's still going. Good, good. I'm looking forward to to watching those on YouTube when they're out. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> right, Bobby, I think I've taken up a lot of your time. So I'm going to kind of wrap it up with just the last two questions, if that's OK. Of course you can. So um, you shared your love for Merlin Premier League sticker books from the mid-90s a little bit back. If money was no object, 
which 90s footballer would you sign for current day West Ham? Oh, 90s footballer. Uh, funny, like I might go back to the, one of my original people that I sort of dismissed statistically. I thought Letizia was a ridiculous <laughs> gift in football. I know my stats, I know he scores everything from the penalty spot, but watching him, the things that he could do, what I would do is two things. One is I'd get on my team. Two, I'd get him a fitness coach. <laughs> I always wonder if he had applied, it's also like Rooney, maybe Rooney's bound for Rooney did go on to achieve great things, but imagine Letizia with his pure giftedness, almost like Messi-like for, for an English player, mm. but with Ronaldo's work ethic in the gym and training. If you, if you get that, you get the, like, the perfect footballer. So you get someone who's got like a genius in his head that you can't really teach, but with Ronaldo's drive for being like, <laughs> the perfect physical specimen. Yeah, yeah. be it. Uh, that... I'd get, Lionel, I'd get uh, Matthew Letizia with Ronaldo's physical fitness coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty phenomenal. I'm, to be honest, I'm shocked it wasn't the Canio. Yeah, I know. The Canio, <laughs> one thing he does have is he has that real passion. Like he would really G up the fans. Uh, yeah. Maybe I, if I had a second wish, you know, like Aladdin and the, the lamp, I'd get him on the. <laughs> You'd get him in there as well. Honestly, yeah. a wonderful autobiography if you've ever read it as well. The guy is not... just as crazy outside of football as he is in it. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah no surprise. All right. Um, so, again, thank you so much for your time today. Um, how can people get in touch with you? So, social media-wise, uh, Twitter's one I'm most active, at Bobby underscore Seagull. We're also Instagram, the same, at Bobby underscore Seagull. Uh, and for those that use LinkedIn, we did mention it earlier, with teachers, it's a great way for a really professional platform. Is it on mm. Instagram and Twitter? I sometimes chat a bit about stuff like West Ham and football and <laughs> Love Island and Bake Off and other things that interest me. But LinkedIn is a really good professional platform where I share a lot of my teaching uh, work. So if any teachers on there, please feel free to add me and have a chat, etc. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. No, thank you. It's, in, it's always good to chat to other fellow teachers because it makes you really think about what's important to you. Again, when you're talking about maths anxiety and how we can help parents and schools with mathematics, obviously you've got these thoughts, but whenever you elaborate them uh, out loud, it makes you really think about what you're, what you're trying to do as well. So thank you so much for that. Definitely. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Lee. Well, that was a really awesome chat. Thanks again so much to Bobby uh, for giving up his time and for being there with me. And I'm really happy to say, in this outro, I'm now finally joined by Chris. How are you doing, Chris? I'm great. I'm glad to be back. Uh, you know, I was there, but I was just on mute the whole time. I was just <laughs> listening in. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I've got to say, it was quite weird uh, flying solo for this one. And I think it really helps having you there and hearing your perspective. Oh, no, well, it was a wonderful conversation. You know, Bobby is you know, so talented and so knowledgeable about maths and maths education. And also just really interesting to hear his experience, you know, working with the BBC um, and, you know, that side, the, the non-teaching side, I found really interesting. It is really, really interesting. And I love the way that, you know, he wears so many different hats. Or waistcoats. Or waistcoats, yeah. <laughs> I think it kind of reminds me that, you know, we're not just one thing. We're not just a teacher or just a something. We can go and do so many different things and learn new things. Yeah. That's what it's all about, right? Yeah. And, you know, you lent me your copy of his book and I, I found it fascinating reading through and, you know, being a child of the 90s, 
Mm. Um, like yourself, like Bobby, you know, made so many connections. Uh, and I think it was that first chapter talking about the the football stickers. It yeah. brought back some vivid memories of hunting down Cantona stickers. And <laughs> <laughs> the shinies, the shinies oh, were always the one. shiny when you get the shield. Yeah, I mean, I had to be really careful not to just make it a conversation about Matthew Letizia, who <laughs> I absolutely love, and I wanted to go through all his goals and. Why, why I still prefer him to righty, even though Ian Wright was a great striker. <laughs> but yeah, so try not to have too much of a football chat. Um, I know you've listened in, and mm. how about, what were some of your takeaways from this episode? I was really interested to learn a bit more about his work into maths anxiety, and mm. it's, you know, it's something that we've had conversations about at school, um, you know, it's something we talk about in class with parents, and it's definitely the subject which tends to get that label the most I think you know yeah. um, whether that comes from the parents or whether it's just the nature of the subject mm. um, and you know when I reflect on my own experience in in primary school not so much but I think definitely it got into secondary school and I had a lot of anxiety myself and I remember um, countless hours spent on the living room floor with my dad and trying to go through and just not getting it and and then I remember seeing that with my sister as well and she went through that same experience with me and I think you know a lot of people have different experiences with maths education don't they yeah definitely I think I was always a very confident mathematician through primary school and then again secondary school when I reflect back now um, I had a lot of sort of behavioral challenges especially towards the end of secondary school and most of those were related to math. And I think that was because there was a very fast turnover of topics. And I was very, very worried that if I don't quite get the topic straight away, especially being in a top set math class, I'm going to look stupid and I'm going to have to move down a set. And my friends will laugh at me. And there was all those kind of things going on. And um, yeah, for me, it was just, it was not a subject that I strongly grabbed, uh, gravitated towards. And yeah, it's been nice as an adult, sort of moving back towards that and enjoying maths again. Definitely, it's, it's probably one of the subjects I enjoy teaching the most. Mm. I, I found it interesting that he talked about the connection with timed assessments and how they can also create anxiety and mm. sort of connecting to that and what he was talking about with uh, times table mastery. One of the changes we've made in our class this year is in the past we used to do these timed times tables tests mm. every Friday it was a 10 minute test where the students had to complete this 12 by 12 grid mm. and it would first of all it would take up an awful lot of time to do yeah. this 10 minute test but secondly it created an awful lot of anxiety for the students mm. and I'm not sure what they got from it and so this year we've ended up adopting times table rock stars which um, if you haven't checked it out it's a fantastic platform fantastic app um, and it's completely shifted um, the students' experience in terms of learning their times tables. It's much more gamified, and they they want to do it. They you know want mm. to learn their times tables, which is having a big impact in the class. Yeah, and I think you you and your teacher partner have taken that right approach there by not saying okay, my students getting a bit anxious and are worried about times tables, so we're just not going to teach them. Hopefully, mm. that will get done at home or that will happen somewhere else. And I think Bobby was very, very clear when he said, you know, I want primary school teachers to make sure those foundations are there. It is our role to be supporting students 
and to give them those tools that let them access that higher level uh, mathematics. And I thought that was a, a really interesting, quite a brave point in many ways mm -hmm. to make. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think there was, I was listening again very recently and I love almost one of the first lines he talks about is the internal value of helping others. And as teachers, I think that's something that we all feel. And, um, and in where we are in the world at the moment, and lots of different things happening, schools having to close and that internal value of helping others. I think we're seeing that. And this is a great way to say thanks to so many teachers worldwide at the moment who mm. are giving so much extra and really having to try new things not trying new things because they want to but because they have to um i think it's a, a really admirable thing and that's something that makes me very proud to be a teacher yeah i've seen so many people opening up and you know just opening their doors and saying you know this is what's worked this is what hasn't worked in our context and it's almost been a, a whole community of teachers learning together hasn't it and yeah. you know i've seen you know some people who do a lot of consulting work just saying you know listen I'm available this weekend if you'd like an hour slot mm. and you know I can have a video conference with you I can you know give you some tips some pointers of what you can do in terms of online learning mm. um, yes yeah, it really shows the power of this community it really does yeah there's been a lot of Twitter threads that I've mm. been following recently of people who've been doing online learning for years already and saying well you know this is how I can help and this is um, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting times it is, uh, for it many is. schools and for the world. But well done to all those teachers who are doing that. And mm. yeah, our thoughts are with you all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd definitely like to give a shout out to um, our dear friend Jacob Edson Hansen and his mm. fantastic podcast. Been loving that mini series he's been doing. There was also a great episode of um, Martin Coote's show mm. um, and they were talking on there you know about some of the practicalities related to online learning um, so if you haven't listened to them um, I highly recommend giving those a listen fantastic so that's uh, Breakfast Conversations yeah and oh the name escapes me of that show um, is it Late Le Night Recap oh yeah Last Night Recap excellent so go check those out and in the meantime you can listen to our back episodes. Yeah. Um, and I really, really hope you enjoyed this chat with Bobby Seagull. Um, and I hope to hear more from you guys on the show as well. Yeah, we'd love to know what you thought about it. Um, whether that's what was your favourite 90s footballer <laughs> <laughs> or what was your own experience growing up with mathematics as a student or teaching it in the classroom. Okay, so we'll be back very shortly. We've got some more fantastic guests lined up. In the meantime, thanks very much, Lee. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. All right. We'll see you all Take soon. Take care.